Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic guest for you today, so let's jump right on in. Now, for those of you who are just as interested as I am in rocket stove technology, then you've come to the right episode. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Kirk Mobert, also known as Donkey. Now, Kirk first started out working for a comic book color separations house by the name of Ollie Optics, and 15 years later decided to get out of the computer graphics game and go into natural building. As a former teacher with the Cobb Cottage Company, he worked with Yanto Evans and Linda Smiley for a number of years though says he is most proud of the contributions that he made to understanding and properly constructing rocket mass heaters. He's now given roughly a decade to the open source investigation of rocket mass technology and is quite happy that things are finally ready for the general public. Kirk now describes himself as a teacher of alternative approaches and ways to think about human habitation. And in this episode, we're going to get into some of his unique views about re-indigenizing the building process. We also got to talk about some of the history and some of the development that it's taken to getting rocket stove and rocket mass heater technology to the point where it is now. And one of my favorite sections of this interview, which is always important to people, is talking about what the real cost of natural building is and getting rid of some of the myths and some of the misconceptions about what it actually costs to build with natural materials. You're definitely not going to want to miss this episode, so let's jump right in. Hello, Kirk. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know we've got a whole bunch of material to get into, so let's just jump right in with the first question. So starting at the beginning, how did you first learn about natural building and what material interested you the most when you were first getting started? So uh, 20 plus years, 22 years ago now, we bought this property. No, 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 sorry. That's not right. 19 plus years ago we built this property we bought this property and we knew that we didn't want um the same old kind of structure to live in you know it's pretty much we bought it as raw property the building that was here already was kind of rotting and had never been finished um so um they just kind of had it under tarps and it was rotting so what we did is we had an opportunity to sort of sweep off the old building and save stuff to rebuild the new one and um, but we didn't want the same old same old so uh, I went looking and um, was really interested in earthships at first and looked into you know a lot of different stuff um, and found Cobb Cottage Company um, 
we decided to build a straw bale, you know, just a straw bale house on, on our site. But I got interested in Cobb at first. Um, and then, you know, went and took a Cobb workshop and started fiddling around for a little while. And then I went back and uh, uh, I got sick of what I was doing. You know, I was a computer graphics guy. I'd, I'd colored comic books and stuff. And I got sick of what I was doing and decided to sort of like change um, jobs, <laughs> so to speak. So it just sort of inspired me to get into natural building and learn um, something more physical, you know, for a change. And so I became a natural builder. All right, now I have to ask, where does the nickname Donkey come from? Um, well, when I was a comic book colorist you know I, I as a color separator for comic books i worked uh for marvel and dc and stuff like that but here in the on the coast um for a company called um Ole optics uh, back in the the late 80s and early 90s um and we all had nicknames you know so um i was uh the network administrator and i colored comic book the comic books and um i would fix the computers and, you know, so I kind of knew all the ins and outs of the business. So when we go to comic book conventions, you know, once or twice a year to get work, um, I was the guy that they would take along uh, on the comic book convention. And I would drive the van with the computers and all the junk in it. <laughs> and uh, then I'd go and I'd set up all the junk. And um, so I got the name Donkey because I was toting all the stuff. So it just stuck. How did you come to start your own natural building company, and what were your goals when you first started? Well, I mean, as I said before, you know, I just got sick of the comic book thing, and, um, you know, I had to do something else. Uh, or it wasn't just comics at that point, it was, you know, it was more natural, I mean, um, computer graphics at that point, you know. Um, anyway, so I had to do something else, I was sick of it, so my goals, my goals were basically just to, you know, kind of have sort of a, a, a day job and do natural building, um, for other people. And, um, it kind of expanded from there into teaching because I ended up teaching more than anything. You know, I sort of insisted that the, the people that I worked for would help me at least a little bit. So they understood what, what they were getting, you know, and they could take care of it later. So yeah, when I first started, my goals were just to have a work, you know, a job that was different than the original. <laughs> So tell me, what are some things that set your school and your workshops apart from other natural building organizations? And what are some unique aspects that you guys are good at? I think our philosophy, our basic core philosophy, is that the natural building, natural building itself is not a set of materials, um, but it's more of a way of looking at problems. Um, you know, wherever you go, you know, natural building is, is real for me, actually, I would say, I would say the natural building is a re-indigenization, um, of, of building. In other words, taking back into the hands of the people who live in the house itself, the task of building the house itself, um, you know, and so that means like wherever people have built traditionally, you know, indigenous builders, what they do is they build with what's of where they are, of the place where they're from, um, you know, because that's what you have at hand. We, we didn't have 
um, you know, a free energy or I should say an abundant energy source um, like oil uh, in the mix. So we couldn't bring, you know, straw bales from a thousand miles away or or something like that, you know, to, to, to build with. So we built with what we had. And I would say re-indigenization means that if you live in a city and you have a lot of recycled uh, materials like steel and glass and stuff like that, building with those materials is natural building. Um, and, and, you know, if you live in a forest, building with wood and mud and stuff like that is natural building. And there are obviously crossovers, you know, where you could find good clay soil in both the city sometimes and in the forest or, on, you know, on a hillside in the desert. You know, you can find a lot of the similar materials that are natural, but you also add in what you have. Um, and we, we stress going into the waste stream and pulling out recycled stuff and trying not to, like, buy new vinyl windows or something like that, you know. So I, I guess for me, the, 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 the way of looking at solving the problem is natural building rather than the materials you're using. Um, as an anecdote, right, so uh, there's this magazine called Natural Homes Magazine, and it's got really cool natural buildings inside. And um, I had bought, you know, I used to buy it. I was pretty regular on this rag. And uh, once there was an article inside of this woman who, um, she lived up pretty high on a mountain someplace in Colorado. And she wanted, or, yeah, in Colorado. And she wanted to build, you know, a natural home. And, um, but in order to build a natural home on Colorado, you know, she needed, she wanted a straw bale home with adobes and, and earthen plasters. And so she went down to New Mexico and she ordered all her, her adobes from New Mexico, which is like, I don't know how far away, you know, like a thousand miles in one direction. And then she, she went down into um, California to get rice straw bales, which is, you know, like a thousand miles in the other direction. Um, and she had all the stuff shipped in on top of this mountain so that she could build this, you know, like admittedly really beautiful natural home. But, but um, by the time I was done reading the article, I kind of, you know, thrown the rag, you know, the magazine against the wall because, you know, it's like, for me, that is antithetical to what the natural building um, ethos is or what, you know, what our, um, uh, I guess what our, our ethic, sort of an ethic of trying to be, you know, less embodied energy and to build with what's around you. Uh, I guess I got off track there, but, but so for me, you know, our school, that's its main thrust is to try to re-indigenize the process, um, make it available to people as a way of looking at um, um, the issue rather than a set of materials and skills to deal with those materials, if you know what I mean. Now, as you know really well, building with Cobb can be incredibly labor-intensive. What are some tips and techniques that you found to make the mixing and building as efficient as possible? Well, for me, the, the most important thing is to um, reduce the number of steps. So um, as far as mixing is concerned, you know, I don't dry mix ahead. Because I see a lot of people, they'll throw their sand out, and they'll throw their soil in. And some people will even throw the straw in, which I think is a huge mistake. And they'll put it all in dry. And then they'll get a couple people on the tarp and they'll roll it back and forth to, to dry mix it. I don't, I don't do that nonsense because that's a step. You know, like you do a lot of rolling when you step on the stuff. So I put, you know, I dump the sand and the, and the, and the soil um, 
on the tarp and wet that. And then what I try to do is I try to um, pay attention to how much water I'm using for subsequent mixes, you know. So I'll, I'll fill up a bucket. And, you know, at first I'll be checking how much water I'm using out of the bucket for each mix. But then once I get it, you know, then I can just fill the bucket to that place. So that's always good, you know, to reduce steps. So then at some point, you know, you're putting out the amount of soil that you use. You're putting out the amount of sand you use. Just pile them on. It doesn't matter what you do first. Um, and then um, kind of kind of make a, a hole in it, you know, like you've got a mound. You make sort of a donut hole in the middle and you pour the water just dump it in. Because, you know, I don't want the water to run away. But I don't make a lot of fuss about it. Just dump the water in and then I get straight to stomping with the tarp. Um... I get one person on a tarp, you know, uh, and I like fairly big tarps. I like a good like eight by fifteen or ten, or sorry, ten by fifteen tarp, um, fairly large tarp. Cause so what I do is I pick up the corners, one corners of the long end of the tarp, and I just hold onto them. And so then I'm stomping on the pile, and I'll walk backwards uh, with the tarp, and um, just sort of constantly flipping the the mix left, right, left, right, left, right, while I walk on the pile. And that'll, that'll work the, the pile all the way to one side of the tarp. So then I'll lay the tarp out flat, and I'll go back over to the other side of the tarp, uh, and then I'll do the same thing. I'll pick up the corners, and I'll work my way back the other way. Um, when you do that, then, then um, there's not as much bending over to pick up the tarp. You don't pick up the tarp and set it down and, you know, flip it, set it down, pick up the tarp, flip it, set it down. That's, that's too many. That's a lot of repetitive motion and it actually mess your back up by the end of the day. Um, so, so I pick up the corners of the tarp, work it, work the material to the other end of the tarp and then f flatten it out, flip around and repeat. So then when I want to add the, the, um, the straw in now, what I'll do is I'll, I'll work the cob, you know, the sand soil mixture, uh, out kind of thin on the tarp sort of all over it and um, I'll take the straw and I'll just walk around that thin bit and I'll add straw and kind of stomp it in right there without flipping um, I'll just get as much straw as I think I'm going to need into the mix all at once in that one step you know and so you know I'll just feel with my feet there's a soft spot and I'll throw a little straw in it and I'm walking in and you know you just kind of get to the the right consistency all the way around. And once you've got that, then it's really important not to just roll the freaking cob over on itself all in one go because you'll end up with a hairball in the middle and a bunch of cob on the outside with no straw in it. So then you just go, you work your way around the tarp and you flip in the edge just a little bit. You flip it in by degrees so it's folded in from the outside in. And then the whole thing will become, you know, more mixed, more homogenized, and you will have worked a lot less. You know, because one of the big steps with the straw is, is if you have a big, tall pile of, you know, like sand soil mix, and then you throw straw on it and start stomping it in, the more you add straw, the harder it is to stomp. So after a while, towards the end of that, you're, you know, you've got a lot of resistance to, to the work you're doing. So you want to avoid that resistance for as much as possible. Anyway, I, I reduce steps. Um, again, that's my big one is just reduce it to the core. Uh, of what's needed to get the mix wet enough, Can, you know, um, the the soil clay soil crushed up enough and gooey enough, and this you know, with as little work as possible. Uh, as far as building with cob, 
techniques to make it faster for building with cob. I noticed if the cob is wetter, it's easier to work. It's much easier to get it onto a wall and get it consolidated with the wall, you know, because you're working the wall into one piece as you go. Um, so you want to get the cob kind of wet so that it, it becomes one piece with the wall really fast. If it's too wet, then you can't build in subsequent days. You know, you get the building too high, too fast, uh, and it'll slump at the bottom. And it, um, So you don't want it too wet. You need really good drying conditions, which I've got here in spades. Um, but see, I've, something I've noticed is that when you work a wall, the less pressure you have to put, which is why I like it wet, because you, you could work the piece together without a lot of pressure. The less pressure I apply to the wall, the less pooching the wall does behind me. You know, because as you work in the new stuff, the stuff behind you kind of goes all over the place. It's fat. It gets fat. Uh, or the stuff below you. So standard cob procedure, you know, as taught by Cobb Cottage, was to take kind of dryish cob, you know, as dry as possible because it's got to dry out later, right? And they're up in Oregon, so this is what they teach. It's wet up there. You know, and you shove, you, you work it down into the layers below. Uh, well, that dryish cob work down thing, it moves the wall a lot. So you get a lot of mushrooming, they call it, below. So you have to saw off a lot or, you know, or trim a lot to keep your walls um, true. And in my experience, instead, what I do is I use wetter stuff and I push horizontally on the wall, build up a little pile in front of me, you know, and then if you're pushing horizontally, it, it, it mushrooms the wall below you less. Um, and so if you're building with wetter stuff, I found you could actually build faster with wet cob and higher in a day than you could with dry cob. It's just that you need good drying conditions. You need subsequent days of really good drying conditions to be able to continue building with really wet cob. Um, you know, because I could do like three feet a day of wet cob if the drying conditions are good enough. But if you do that two, three days in a row um, and you don't have the drying conditions, then you're going to have some serious problems. Now, Kirk, you've given almost a decade to open source plans for rocket stoves and rocket mass heaters. What are some of the biggest advancements you've seen in this technology since you started working on it? Well, I mean, rocket stoves work now. Um, when uh, I first got into it, when I built my first rocket stove, they generally didn't work very well because we didn't really know what it took to make them work, right? Um, and I accidentally built one. The reason why I got into rocket stoves is I accidentally built one that worked pretty well. And, um, you know, and I loved it. And I went around and talked to other people who had rocket stoves, you know, some of the other, like, first adapters. And they, you know... A lot of them, most of them actually hated them and they didn't work very well at all. And, um, and they were taking them, you know, taking them out, taking them back out and installing wood stoves again. And I want, you know, I wanted to know why, like why, why does my stove work well? Um, what did I do? Because it was, you know, totally accident that mine worked because we didn't know how to make them work. I just accidentally made one that did. So anyway, so, so I got interested and, um, and 
other people were kind of had the same thought like, oh, wow, look, mine worked. And I'm kind of a natural builder and I want to figure this out. So like Ernie and Erica Wisner, Ernie Wisner, at least Ernie Wisner got in on the game. And, um, uh, and so we did some research, you know, Yanto called me and Ernie and, um, uh, Leslie Jackson up to his place at one point in Cobb Cottage. And we sat down for two weeks, uh, in the rain under kind of a halfway under a roof with water dripping down our necks for half the time. And we um, broke and build, built stoves until, until we kind of figured out how to make them sort of work. And then, and then Leslie and Yanto built, wrote the first book, the rocket stove. Uh, not the red book, but because they had a red kind of zine stapled together thing, but the first um, edition of the rocket mass heaters book. They uh, built, wrote that first edition off of what we learned. So um, from then on, you know, like we kind of could make rocket stoves work. There were still some details, you know, because occasionally, occasionally we discovered that, that we actually didn't, well, we actually subsequently discovered that we really didn't know um, that there were still some things missing. So um, after a couple of years of fooling around, you know, we discovered some other things to make rocket stoves work. So, uh, that was pretty exciting. <laughs> so the biggest change since um, since I first got into rocket stoves is now they actually work. Uh, but beyond that, there's there's the new batch box rocket stove system, which is really cool. It sort of solves a lot of the problems remaining with why you would not want a rocket stove, which is you know with a batch box, you know it's got a bigger firebox. Um, you could put regular split wood into it. You know, unlike you know. Rocket stoves, which, you know, you need little sticks and they're fiddly bits. Um, uh, the batch rocket, you can, uh, you could see the fire really nicely. You could put a, a window in it with glass. Um, put regular wood in. The training of other people isn't a big deal, you know, because it's kind of obvious how to use it. If you've used a regular wood stove, you can probably do pretty good with a, a batch rocket. Um... We've uh, got the efficiency of batch rockets and the, the J-tube stoves up to, like, if you build it well, sort of an average of, like, 93% outside of the, uh, you know, outside of the laboratory. So, I mean, we're seeing stoves that can run at 93% efficiency outside of the laboratory, which is unheard of, you know, so that's a big deal right there. Um, I mean, you know, rocket stoves have changed so much. They are, I, I, and I think they're really ready for um, for prime time. You know, for to to take out into the the um, the prime time world, you know, general public, and introduce them. You know, I, I think I think they're mature enough now um, that they could be made by a competent builder. You know, pretty much anywhere. And that's a big deal. From not working to, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, for people who would like to experiment with and test their own rocket stoves and heaters, what metrics do you look for in making a stove more efficient, and how do you measure the performance of a stove? Well, okay, I try to stay away from numbers, first of all. So, um, what I would say is build outside uh, first. So, if you want to build it in your house and you have sort of a corner or something, I would go outside and mock up the space where you want to build your stove. And then, you know, it's nice if you get outside under a covered roof, you know, like with a roof over you, but, you know, you want to be able to have just like open walls. So 
So you're not going to breathe, breathe noxious fumes or anything. You want a place that you can completely smoke out and you don't have to worry about your health. Uh, it could be inside a big barn. It could be, you know, anyway. So you go outside and you build a mock-up of your space that you want to build the stove in and then just build, like, build the stove. Um, build it out of materials that you can, you could, you know, you, like you're not going to build it out of castable refractory in place out there. That's an expensive proposition. But you could build the stove out of, you know, bricks and mud and the mud can be locally dug up and sand and straw, and, you know, really build it and then troubleshoot it because you're going to run into trouble. You're going to run into problems. It's not going to work for some reason. So you're going to take the barrel off and dig into this thing and find out what the problem is and, and fix, you know, so my advice is don't make your first installation or the first stove you build the one inside your house um, or, the you know, indoors. Build a bunch of them outdoors first and find out why they do and don't work. You know, and, you know, and reading um, a book or going to um, the forums and getting information is nice, but but it really needs to click in your head um, to be able to build effectively. So um, that's what I recommend. Is I recommend the only way to really have the way they, they, the stoves work and the way you tune them down is to just do it and let it click in your head. So find a place, do some experiments. Um, you know, try different things. Uh, make and break a few stoves. Um, and, you know, another thing that I like to do is I like to build the stoves while they're running. So I'll, um, you know, I like, I'll, I'll use like adobes or, 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 a, or bricks or some kind of unit that I could build very quickly with. I, I got a lot of adobes around here because it's a school and I get people on adobes early and we can use them to build um, boxes and, and things for stoves really fast. Benches and things, you know, like you can do outer skin of a bench and then cob it up really beautifully. Um, with adobes and get it done, you know, very quickly and have a full-on stove built in one day. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I like to build that while the stove is running so that if for some reason it's not going to work uh, or I drop some cob in a pipe or somewhere or something like that, you know instantly, you get instant feedback. Suddenly it stops working. <laughs> And, you know, and then you can go find out why. Instead of, you know, building a, a, a full-on cob bench and a stove and, and then letting it dry first and then running it and then finding out it doesn't work, um, then you don't know where to start looking. You know, you basically got to chop the whole darn thing open usually. Well, I mean, there's a couple places to look first, but, you know, but it's better, it's best, I think, to uh, build while the stove is running. You know, and then you could also tune the stove itself. And you, you could sort of, learn, you know, tune it actively while it's running. Um, one of the ways that I've tested performance is just with my nose. You know, just you could just smell what's coming out of the chimney pipe. Um, there's a massive difference between a fire that's burning cleanly and a fire that's not. And um, your nose is accurate down to, you know, it's just about as good as a testo. You know, you're not going to get hard and fast numbers off of um, a nose read, but you're going to be able to say, wow, that's running really clean or, or not pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say trust your nose and, um, and test a lot and build a lot of stoves and build them while they're running. Those are my three big ones. Okay, now tell me, 
What are some good resources that people can look to in order to learn more about rocket stoves and heaters? Um, well, there are the books. There's uh, there's the um, rocket stove book for um, uh, from Yanto Evans and Leslie Jackson. The uh, um, uh, how to build your own handmade. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, oh my God, I'm blanking. The Rocket Mass Heaters book by Leslie Jackson and uh, Yanto Evans. And then there's a new Rocket Mass Heaters book, How to Build book by um, Ernie and Erica Wisner. Uh, I recommend those books for sure. Uh, also, you know, everything can be found free of charge at, um, at the forum, donkey32.proboards.com. Uh, that's a great one. There's a really good community there and, um, the, there's active development happening all the time. So a lot of the new cutting edge stuff is happening there. Uh, there's also the forums over at, um, uh, at permies.com. There's a, a fire into the forum and Ernie and Erica Wisner are there and they're really sharp as well. And you can ask questions, um, at rocketstoves.com, uh, to Leslie Jackson and she can help field questions. Now, you and I were talking the other day about one of the articles that I wrote called The Real Cost of Natural Building that aims to give a more realistic look at what you should expect to pay for a natural structure, even if you build it yourself. For anyone who's interested in reading the full article, you can find it on the website at AbundantEdge.com under the news section. But anyway, you had some really good feedback and observations on that topic. Would you mind going over some of those again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what really struck me about your article, um, Oliver, is that it was honest. Um, I think that we've gotten sort of this, you know, natural builders have been really triumphalist over the years. We've got a good thing going, you know, and um, we've said, you know, anybody can do it and anybody can do it out of pocket. And so this is cheap. Uh, and, and objectively sort of, I mean, there's two ways to look at that. Uh, I think that, but, but, you know, that's true enough as it is. You, you can reasonably expect as somebody who works a regular job or maybe even two regular jobs, you know, like everybody has to work these days to keep things down, to build your own small dwelling. And I do mean small. Um, you can reasonably expect to do that. And you could reasonably be expected to, to in subsequent years with the same crummy jobs, um, to add on to that small, small, small dwelling, you know, subsequent staged expansions, in, you know, small expansions, which, which is sort of a pattern that we advocate for. But, um, and you could do that out of pocket, you know, and, you know, like a, a, like a 200 square foot space could easily cost less than $1,000 in materials, right? But, but we, you know, I think that we've, we've, given, we've done a disservice to um, the, the general community out there by, by being triumphalist and couching it in the terms that we've couched it in over the years. If anybody can do this, and it's cheap. Well, okay, how much is your time worth? Um, because... I recently had somebody get the idea that it was cheap and they were going to hire me to come build them a Cobb house because it was cheap. And it doesn't actually work that way. If you hire me to build you a Cobb house, you're going to pay for labor. 
because building one of these things is, you know, it's immensely labor-intensive. Um, you know, and I'm going to charge, you know, 40 or 50 bucks an hour for my time here in the States. Uh, you know, and anybody who's working with me is going to get between 20, you know, 20 and $30 an hour here in California. And, um, you know, so a crew of three is going to cost you a lot of money per day. And, you know, cob is heavily labor intensive. You, you don't go to the lumber store and pick up a bag of ready-made cob. You go out and you dig up stuff and, you know, and you, you pick out the big rocks and the big, you know, whatever is in there and, you, you know, you mix it up yourself. So, so yeah, no, you're not going to save a dime, not a single dime. And it might actually cost you more to have a natural building built for you. Um, and, you know, and it's a big shock to people, or it has, I have experienced that people in the past have been utterly shocked when they realized that hiring me was going to cost them something. Um, when, when the word on the street is, and the word in the books is, that, um, you know, it's, it's cheap. It's cheap and anybody can do it. You know, so, so both can be true. Anyway, so I think that, that what I like about your website is that um, it show, it says that straight up. It's honest. What's your time worth, man? You know, okay, yeah, it's only $1,000 worth of materials, but it's going to be, you know, the next year of your life or two years of your life or how, you know, it's serious hours of your life um, and hard labor and, good, and a lot of sweat. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you don't forget to account for that early up, really early on in the process, um, to not give yourself too many, you know, unrealistic expectations about what you're going to get. So let's switch for a second here over to a more optimistic topic after getting into all the um, slightly discouraging aspects of, you know, the real cost of natural building. What are some of the things that have gotten you really inspired lately in the world of natural building and design? Well, I mean, you know, I think an important thing to remember is that, yeah, it's really labor intensive, you know, um, but you can own it yourself. And, and you can build it for yourself any place. And so if you're down with the philosophy and you don't get hung up on, well, that's not out of mud, that's not cob, you know, that can't be natural building, forget all that stuff. You know, you can, you can actually repurpose recycled materials and, you know, like take pallets and screw them together and stuff straw or, or even like if you have a large amount of it, old t-shirts or clothes or you know, chopped, chopped brush or anything down inside of those pallets. And, you know, you can take an earth mixture, uh, make a big earth plaster and plaster over those pallets and disappear all that stuff and put together, you know, an actual tiny, tiny, tiny little shelter for next to nothing. And, you know, and I could take some of the dirt off the ground and mix it with a little bit of sand over there and maybe a little straw or manure and I can make adobe bricks. And with those bricks, I can build a stove that's just as efficient as its nearest competitor, which is $10,000. That's a big masonry stove. I could build a, a stove that's just as efficient as a masonry stove for less than 100 bucks if I'm willing to do the labor myself. That's the deal, is the labor. Um, you know, so on an optimistic tone... Uh, there's no need, if you're aware of natural building or whatnot, that you need to be an uncomfortable homeless person as long as you're not run out of the hovel that you make 
You can make even a hovel with your own bare hands and a reasonable amount of time and be very comfortable any place. Uh, and, and I think that's important. That's something that we've been missing uh, in our modern world is we don't have, you know, we don't have direct control over uh, shelter uh, or clothing or uh, our basic needs. And um, it feels very liberating to be able to take direct control over some of your basic needs. And natural building, building, building really allows that with a very important part of our aspect of our lives, which is shelter. So now tell me, where or how do you see the world of natural building advancing and progressing in the years to come? Well, I mean, as it stands right now, at least in the United States, in most of the places in the United States anyway, and, you know, in a lot of places all over the world, England, Europe, uh, you know, there's uh, building codes don't have cob in them. Um, and, or, or, or other natural building techniques, you know. Part of the problem is, um, oh, I don't know, insurance. You know, liability is part of the issue. And so building with non-standard materials is typically frowned on in, you know, most... Uh, places with with strict building codes, and maybe rightfully so, you know. Um, but you know, I think our interface with uh, with the building departments wherever we are has to be um, well thought out, and um, you know, and we have to co go go to our building officials well informed, and. Um, you know, to be able to really help them with the understanding of what it is that we're doing. And we need to go on a, sort of a regime of exploration to quantify some numbers about uh, what we're doing. Or quantify not just numbers, you know, of the materials themselves, you know, compressive strength and, and shear strength and, you know, and ways of... But also quantifying um, procedures, I would say. Because uh, a lot of natural building is about procedure rather than a particular, you know, because every shovel full of dirt from one place or another, even if they're very close to each other, they're a little different. So, you know, if I dig ten, in two places 10 feet apart, I'm going to have a slightly different quantity of sand, say, or, or aggregate in, in my mix. So, you know, I have to be awake to that and alter how much I would add after that. So the point being that, that it's a process rather than, you know, that would be um, somehow finding a way to permit and allow a process that creates a range of possible positive outcomes, <laughs> rather than what, you know, the building department focuses on, which is direct stress tests of a given known material, um, which can get really expensive when every single mix is different. So could you imagine, you know, like having to test every mix before you can use it um, or from every region or area before you can use it it's subjecting it to you know anyway it can get very expensive fast and, and in order to keep that sort of re-indigenous concept and interface with the building department um, that's sort of the angle that I'd like to approach it at because you know you can take a building you know like a thousand dollars in building materials I keep saying you know, with maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars worth of my own effort and and help and effort from friends, um, so that versus a thirty thousand uh, dollar building like permit, <laughs> you 
you know, so we got to find a way to, to not have a $5,000 house, um, or with maybe $10,000 worth of, you know, a value of labor in it or $20,000 worth of value of labor in it and pay $35,000 for the permit to build it. That's sort of out of scale. It doesn't make sense there. There's got to be a way, there's got to be a way in there so that, that, so that the, the permitting process is to scale and more permissible. Anyway, I, I think I babbled on that one long enough. Okay, now before you go, how can people learn a bit more about the Sundog School of Natural Building and your work? Uh, you go to our website, um, www.sundogbuilders.net, uh, and you can uh, see a little bit about us there. Uh, you can email me at info at sundogbuilders.net. We do have a Facebook page, Sundog Space Builders. Uh, I think it's Sundog Space Builders. Uh, on Facebook, where you can see some of our past projects. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions and help us to get to understand all of these topics so much better, Kirk. I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find further information at AbundantEdge.com in our show notes under each individual episode. And the full library of podcasts is available under the podcast tab in the navigation window on the website. As always, don't forget to check out our library of educational articles. And for those of you who are interested in starting your own projects in natural building or permaculture landscaping, we offer a full range of services from consulting, contracting, and design. Thank you so much in advance for those of you who listen to and support these episodes. If I could ask for one favor, especially in these early days while this podcast is just getting started, please visit our site and our link at itunes.com and leave a review. Leaving a review helps us to reach a larger audience and spread this education as far as we can. Of course, the main point of these episodes is not to be a one-way lecture series, but rather a dialogue. As always, I would love to hear from all of you. Give me your feedback, your comments, your advice, and even your corrections. You can leave comments under all of the episodes on the website or email me directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. Thanks again for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode.